It's Monday, July 2nd, and this is The Daily Dive. This is going to be a big week for tariffs in the United States. Some of our allies and biggest trading partners have slapped the U.S. with retaliatory tariffs on some of the biggest agricultural products we export, such as beef, pork, and soybeans. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for a breakdown of these tariffs, the news that North Korea may be deceiving us about denuclearization, and the ongoing anger over the president's immigration policies. Next, we will get you all the details about the Capitol Gazette shooting. Who are the five victims that had their lives taken prematurely? And why the shooter's grudge over a negative article about him in the paper motivated him to carry out his attack. Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter, joins us for that, and also why anyone who's ever worked at a newspaper has a Jared Ramos story to tell. Finally, confusion over how the shooter was identified swirled in the hours after the attack. Police use facial recognition technology to confirm his identity. As more police departments use this tech in increasing ways, it was a win for the Anne Arundel police and for the technology. Tech reporter for USA Today, Marco De La Cava, joins us to discuss how the process works and why some civil liberty groups fear facial recognition technology. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The big thing that I'm focused on now is trade. I have to straighten out trade deals. We have the worst trade deals in the world. We lose money with everybody. You know, when somebody walks in and say, how much do we lose with this country? We lose with everybody. We're going to make it reciprocal. We're going to make them fair. And I will tell you that you don't know about this, but every country is calling every day saying, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. It's going to all work out. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. We have a big week coming up. Everybody's going to be celebrating Fourth of July, really not on the top of mind for a lot of people. But a lot of our allies, other countries are going to be hitting the U.S. with a slew of different tariffs this week. Canada is going to be hitting us with tariffs on beef, Mexico on pork, China increased tariffs on soybeans. What's going on? President Trump has decided that the best way he thinks to handle international trade is to tack big tariffs on some of the items that are imported in the United States. And those countries aren't having it. And they have all, for the most part, retaliated. These are the types of things that business, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, even Republicans on the Hill were really warning about, that if you become aggressive against our allies, going after them on trade, that they're going to push back. And we're seeing exactly that. You talked about dairy, you talked about beef and some produce, things that we grow here in the United States and then we ship to Canada and Mexico, really going to hit the heartland and those farmers and those agricultural economies in our country that depend on those exports. One of the uh, surprising ones is pork. I think everybody is trying to tax us extra specifically on that. I think Mexico and Canada, everybody's getting a different angle, but they're all targeting pork manufacturers. One of our biggest exports, culturally speaking, at least on this continent, is pork. We raise a lot of pigs, particularly out in Iowa, and then export that pork to those two countries. And these retaliatory tariffs aren't just going to affect the ability to sell pork in these other countries. When there's more pork on the market, it can affect American consumers as well. So these could be really far-reaching impact, not just on the people trying to sell the pork, but on, on our own economy here as well. You mentioned that this was very much retaliatory from tariffs that the president imposed on steel and aluminum. But does this also include discussions and negotiations on NAFTA? All of this is mixed together. It's impossible to separate them out. The steel and aluminum tariffs have directly affected our trading partners, Mexico and Canada, in the NAFTA agreement as they're trying to renegotiate that agreement. And we know that President Trump thinks that this is sort of a way to warn them or to put them on notice or to get them motivated to the table. And instead, 
instead, what we're seeing is they're saying, well, you want to tax our autos and you want to tax our steel and aluminum, then we'll tax your exports. And we might not be done. We're really looking at the possibility of a trade war with our closest allies. President has said autos are next. He's conducting a review of them that would really sort of further escalate the situation. Well, we'll have to see how quickly these things start to take effect because of the steel and aluminum tariffs. We already saw the news with Harley Davidson moving production outside of the United States. All of these new tariffs, some started yesterday. The rest of them start on the 5th and the 6th of this week. The other thing that was happening over the weekend is this new news out of North Korea. This is something a lot of people expected. Obviously, we hoped it wouldn't happen. U.S. officials and other reports are saying that North Korea is still increasing their nuclear production at secret sites now, despite these ongoing denuclearization talks. We're seeing reports from U.S. officials, U.S. intelligence officials saying that North Korea continues to develop fuel. They continue to develop other uh, elements needed for nukes, that they're storing them in hidden sites, and that they may be deceiving the U.S. about the number of nuclear warheads that they have in their arsenal. We saw President Trump sort of seem really cheery after meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, suggesting that they were no longer a nuclear threat, that they had abandoned their program except a lot of people thought that that was unlikely to be the case. And there's a lot of fear now. And what we're hearing from U.S. officials is that they believe that that they continue to develop those weapons and that this could be a sign that they have little intention of going along with an agreement with the United States. Some of the interesting details that came out from officials and then from this website, uh, 38north.com, which monitors North Korea, they said that in 2009, when they built a particular enrichment facility, that they did it so fast that it seemed as if they had done it before. Like, you can't build a nuclear facility this good, this quickly, without having to do it before. So they fear that there's a secret site that they have not disclosed. And that's why, as part of these discussions, they want North Korea to disclose every single site that they possibly have, just so we can proceed with closing everything down, basically past negotiations with countries in an attempt to denuclearize their arsenals. We've insisted upon having inspectors who can go in and look at these facilities and ensure that they have been decommissioned and ensure that the weapons aren't just being hidden somewhere else. This is likely part of that push. If you say, oh, we only had one and it was over here and you saw it already and we, we, we destroyed it, isn't sufficient if there are more secret facilities. The furor over this zero tolerance policy with the president and and, uh, immigrant families coming to the country and kids being separated from their families, it has not stopped. There was a whole bunch of protests over the weekend. There's this abolish ICE movement now. This immigration discussion is not calming down anytime soon. We are seeing it heat up, people out in the street protesting in front of the White House, but also in cities across the country. And if you're a Republican leader in Congress, this is something to be very worried about. These are people who are unhappy with the president. They're unhappy with the way Congress is conducting themselves, and they are going to vote. People who show up and protest in the streets don't just skip Election Day. And this is a little more evidence that particularly Democrats are really fired up, and they could make Republicans pay at the ballot box in November. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sorry, it'll be a little bit tough. For those who don't know who we are, this is uh, Celine San Felice, Rachel Pacella, Daniel, and I'm Phil Davis. We all work at the Capitol currently. 
the reason we want to say the names is because we are not going to forget them and we don't want other people to forget them because they are, they are the story. Uh, and they're Rebecca Smith, uh, Rob Hyacin, Wendy Winters, Gerald Fishman, and John McNamara. Joining us now is Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed news reporter. We uh, were witness to another shooting in the country. Jared Ramos stormed the Capitol Gazette building and shot down five people, injured two others. He's being held on five counts of murder right now without bond. Memorial services are beginning later today for some of those victims. Let's start there. Who were the victims of this uh, Capitol Gazette shooting? First victim is Rob Hyacin, and he was a columnist and editor and also taught journalism. He was known for his humor, and he was apparently gentle, and um, statement said that he believed profoundly in the craft mission of serving the public's right to know the news. Then there's Rebecca Smith, who was the sales and advertising coordinator for the newspaper, and she was 34. She's supposed to get married. She's also a mother. One of her friends just described her as one of the strongest women I know. Wendy Winters is 65. She was the mother of four, beloved editor and community news reporter at the, the Capitol. Then there was Gerald Fishman, 61. He worked at the Capitol Gazette more than 25 years, and he was an editorial writer. He was described as quirky and witty by colleagues. And there was John McNamara, who's 56, and he was a sports reporter, and a few of my colleagues actually worked with him. And he was uh, described as a loyal friend with an infectious laugh and as a willing mentor for young journalists. Yeah, it's just a crazy, surreal yeah. um, experience. And so, yeah, those, those are who the, the victims were, just very beloved, well-known writers and staff members in the, the community who loved journalism. The weekend has passed now. There's more details coming out of what happened in the newsroom. There yeah. was a photographer in there, Paul Gillespie, specifically speaking about Wendy Winters, saying that she had gone through active shooter training before and and he could hear her almost, they don't know exactly what happened, but it, they think that she might have tried to encounter the shooter and shouting no, you know, like if they were in a some type of struggle for the people, the survivors that were in there that experienced the whole thing. It was just a harrowing ordeal. Beyond that, you know, they talk about the, the shooter, Jared Ramos. They're saying he was a loner, obsessed with reputation, he had a grudge against the paper because they wrote an article about him. What was this about? He had a long vendetta against the newspaper after they published a column about him in 2011 called Jared Wants to Be Your Friend. And it was about him pleading guilty to harassing a former high school classmate in 2011. And he kind of like found her online and he started emailing her and calling her vulgar names, telling her to, to kill herself and then trying to get her fired, and it was just this bizarre onslaught of criminal harassment. And so one of the columnists for the Capitol Gazette wrote about it, and so then Ramos was so incensed by this and felt that his privacy was violated and they ruined his reputation, so he sued the columnist as well as the Capitol Gazette and the editor at the time for defamation. And then obviously the judge was like, so can you give us an example of how this column has like hurt you in any way or ruined your life and he couldn't and he represented himself also so then they threw it out and he appealed it and the same thing in 2013 appeals court upheld the original ruling and then so he created this twitter account in 2011 and it was just super bizarre it has this photo weird photoshopped picture of the reporter and spent years and years going after staff members specifically you know this reporter and the judge too. And, and the article itself in the Gazette was really just kind of a warning. 
they used this particular case as an example, but it was really just a warning of like, hey, beware of people you connect with online because people can take it a little too far. They didn't specifically defame him, but in his mind, that's what it was. And it, it, this seething vendetta just grew over the years. You know, there's tons of coverage of this. And someone said, every newspaper reporter knows Jared Ramos. And it says, anyone who's ever worked at a newspaper in any department has a story to tell about this kind of person, somebody who doesn't let something go. They, they connect with you in a different way because you're writing something that they might feel passionately about. And there's always these stories of people taking it too far and harassing you and everything. Do you think that holds true? Definitely. I mean, and we were talking about this too, and it's just kind of this thing you, you, you should laugh off because you're not really sure what, what else to do. I mean, I've had, I used to go live from Trump rallies a lot, and I ended up finding clips of myself on YouTube, like with these crazy titles, like one person accused me of planting a Nazi at a, a community event to make Trump supporters look bad. And I just kind of like, oh, wow, that's someone took the time to like make this video clip and concoct this story. And like, that's kind of weird. And so I think that's what was so shocking is this is just our job as we are interviewing a lot of different types of, of people. And, and sometimes the details that come out, you don't really know what people's buttons are. And when you push them, you just don't think someone would do something like this. And, and and the editor, he had contacted authorities because it started to cross the line and then nothing was done because they didn't really know what to do. Our hearts go out to the families of the victims and uh, we'll keep following this uh, to see how he progresses through court now and see and see what happens there. Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, the information about the suspect's fingerprints being mutilated, absolutely untrue. We have no idea where that information came from. I can confirm for you at this time that we identified the suspect with help through other investigative techniques by using facial recognition technology. Joining us now is Marco Della Cava, technology and culture writer for USA Today. After the shooting at the Capital Gazette newspaper, the first information is always kind of unreliable. We don't know what's going on, but they were trying to identify the shooter. And at first, reports were saying that he had somehow obscured his fingerprints. He was being very uncooperative with police and they had to use facial recognition technology to ID him. They did indeed have to use facial recognition technology, but the fingerprints thing didn't really pan out. What happened in that situation? What, what did they use to identify the suspect? You've described it accurately. There was some confusion about the fingerprints. In the end, it seemed like there was just a delay on getting information back off of his prints. So instead, the law enforcement in Maryland decided to submit his photo to something called the Maryland Combined Analysis Center, which leverages a system used by the Maryland Image Repository System that essentially, once it's fed a photo, searches through lots and lots of photos in its system of everything from licensed photos, DMV photos, to photos in the criminal justice system to see what it can come up with. And that's how they ended up tracking the identity of this particular individual. A lot of people might not realize, in the most part, your face might be in some type of database somewhere that police or and other groups even could use to identify you in some way, especially with the way police use them. They're all public records things. So 
If you've been convicted of a crime and you have a mugshot or something like that, all that stuff counts. Correct. And this guy sort of harassed a woman in his past, which got him into some hot water with the law. And I think that's partly why his photo was in the system. So to some degree, there was a lot made about the use of facial recognition to find him. And that's generated some controversy in the past because of other factors. I don't think that many people would argue that in this particular case, that system was misused because everyone was eager to find out who he was. Right, exactly. And that's why it's such a discussion because it was used very positively here in this situation, but there are groups who don't really agree with this. Let's take a quick step back and describe how facial recognition software works. How do these things identify you? It's in use in your, your iPhone 10, which as you, as you might know, has a front-facing camera, and when it recognizes your face, it unlocks the phone. A digital rendition of your face is created, and then a computer system checks against those same digital data points. It's sort of a digital fingerprint, but it's of your face. In the case of the iPhone, confirms that it's you, that you are you, based on these data points of your face, and it opens the phone. Well, it works similarly here, but the issue is that the system is still being developed and refined, and it seems to have particular trouble with non-white individuals, and that's what has some civil liberty attorneys and groups concerned. I know it uses a a lot of plot points on your face, the width of your nose, the shape of your ears, the eyes, everything like that. But uh, they're concerned with a lot more things like mass surveillance or real-time surveillance. If you're at a protest, they can identify you and then uh, track you somehow. Right, exactly. I mean, it's essentially the usual concern about technology, which is whose hands is it in? If it's in the hands of somebody who's going to use it judiciously, if the system itself is fairly free of bias, well, you probably don't have many problems. But if you've got weak links, let's say the system has a difficult time with African-American faces, well, it could pull up somebody who's totally innocent as a result of just a flaw in the technology. And, and also, as you've alluded to, if somebody wanted to use this to no good, they could do that. They could say, I need to see everyone who was at that protest because I disagree with their point of view. And whereas before they would just be faces in the crowd, now if you've leveraged this technology, you could start identifying who is in the crowd. In Maryland specifically, it costs about 185 grand to keep this system up. They did release a memo saying when people talk about privacy concerns that only authorized personnel are allowed to use it. You have to have certain credentials. The searches are protected. But this is also going on in other police departments across the country. I know Orlando had come under scrutiny for using these things as well. In Orlando, they're essentially rolling out a pilot program where they were going to start leveraging facial recognition technology. They came under sort of fire by groups like the ACLU. They recently, as in early last week, decided for the moment to shut that program down. When they released that decision, they also quickly added a comment in their statement saying, you know, we reserve the right to uh, consider using it again. So it was sort of uh, maybe a partial victory for groups like the ACLU. In this situation, very positive outcome. We were able to identify him much quicker than waiting for those fingerprints. But as technology keeps improving at such a rapid pace, I mean, these type of things are going to be implemented more and more. It's uh, worth saying that some of the biggest companies around are working on this tech. So you've got Microsoft working on the technology. 
famously, Amazon has a technology called recognition, which is spelled with a K. That's facial recognition in, uh, I believe, IBM as well. So when you have big tech companies like that working on it, you know it's not a fringe uh, tech that's uh, maybe here right now and gone tomorrow. Marco Delacava, technology and culture writer for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>